Welcome to the 152nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with C.C. Humphreys, author of many novels, including the historical series Jack Absolute. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by the book-loving nerds at Riffle. Riffle is an online book community that connects readers with authors and books that they'll love. Readers use Riffle to find the next book that they want to read, and authors use Riffle to make their books stand out and drive sales. Join the Riffle community today at rifflebooks.com. That's R-I-F-F-L-E-B-O-O-K-S.com, and look for the link in the show notes as well. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is C.C. Humphreys, author of the Jack Absolute series, historical novels that have received widespread praise. The best-selling author, Diana Gabaldon, called the Jack Absolute novels an absolute delight. C.C.'s other novels include A Place Called Armageddon, Constantinople 1453, Shakespeare's Rebel, the French Executioner series, and others. C.C., welcome to the podcast. Very nice to be here. Great. Well, can I have you read a couple of pages from your novel, The Blooding of Jack Absolute? Sure, I'd be delighted. Uh, I'm just going to read a, a passage from the middle of the book. Uh, it doesn't give too much away, but I think it sums up the book quite nicely. It's uh, Jack is 16 years old at this stage, and he's living in London, and he's uh, got himself into a bit of trouble. He's always hated his cousin, Craster, since they were children. Craster was a real bully. And Craster Absolute has now um, ravished, actually, the, the girl that Jack's in love with. So Jack has come to Vauxhall Gardens, the famous pleasure gardens of London in the 18th century, uh, to uh, seek revenge. And he's got himself caught up in a, in a duel with Craster. Jack's father has showed up, Sir James Absolute, and is giving his son some advice about the duel. And, uh, and so that's the passage I'm going to read. Because it was Vauxhall Gardens, everyone was wearing masks at the time, and they've now gone outside Vauxhall Gardens to the fields beyond it to fight this duel. Um, the fields are market gardens, so I'm afraid they're, they're covered in um, human excrement. So here we go. Here we go. Great. In a few moments, his father returned. That's all settled then, he declared briskly. Both sides agree. The president himself is to have the checking and the loading of the guns, for they are his, fetched from his boat here. It is to be one shot apiece and one shot only. Jack flushed. One? But, but what if I miss? And he misses you? Why, then you shake hands and walk away, and no harm done. No harm? Jack had begun to shiver, but no longer from cold or fear. That scum ravished Clotilde Gwen, brutalized her, an innocent, a sweet... A flash of bloodstains, of tears, jammed the words in his throat. He coughed, swallowed. I intend to kill him. That may be. There's enmity between you and your cousin I can never comprehend, though I felt much the same about his father. But if you do not put a killing ball into him, you will not fulfill your intention this night. Jack made to speak, but his father grabbed his shoulder. Look at me, boy. No, look at me. This is not about Clotilde anymore. If she was harmed, as you say, we must allow the law to deal with that. 
So this is no longer about vengeance. This is about honor. A man's honor is his life. Without it, we are nothing less, and our family name is naught. When you stand facing him, you stand for nothing but that name, just as he stands for it, for all the absolutes that have preceded you and all the absolutes to come. But if you had seen her father, the hand pulled the collar roughly. Have you listened, boy? She is a matter for another day, other ground. This day is now only about honor. And whether you live, live crippled or die, honor will be satisfied by a single shot. And if I die? Tears came then, lodged in his eyes, sprung from many sources of anger and fear. We are born astride a grave, my boy, Sir James said softly, looking away. Live your life knowing that, and you will live your life. The president called them to order. Releasing his son's collar, straightening it with a flick, Sir James pushed Jack toward the ground, where the president handed the elder absolute a pistol. Craster was waiting on a level patch of cropped grass. Jack, his father beside him, walked quickly to stand just behind a cross gouged in the grass, turning from there to face his cousin. He was no more than a dozen paces away. His father was speaking softly to him again. With an effort, Jack tried to listen to what he was saying. My first time. A blur. Body side on. Reduce target. Finger off trigger. Raise, breathe, sight, squeeze. Words flew at him. Words he recognized that yet had little meaning. He found he had stopped breathing and decided to take in air. Then he found he was taking too much, that he suddenly wanted to laugh. How absurd it all suddenly was. The fertilizing shit, the masked men, his hated cousin. How absurd. With a final squeeze, his father moved away to rest ten paces back, the same to the side. When he settled, the president began to speak. Again, words passed. Again, he took some in, but not all. Craster's seconds moved away to their positions. Jack looked at his cousin, who stood with eyes downcast, seemed to see every detail of him. His thick, reddish hair held down with oil, the scratches on his cheek from Clotilde's nails, the flesh bruising where Jack had struck. These wounds beneath the mask his opponent had replaced, as Jack had replaced his. Indeed, all the principals in the action wore them, gods, imps, and emperors standing silently, the wind moving their cloaks, a hallucination by moonlight. Central in the group was the huge figure of his satanic majesty, Lord Melbury. The president was still speaking, and Jack forced himself to listen. So, gentlemen, I repeat, I will give you three commands to your mark, you will step up. Make ready, you may raise your guns. I will then call out, fire. Once you hear that word, you may act upon it whensoever you please, not before. He stepped back. Gentlemen, to your mark. Jack moved to the cross, scraped his feet into the grass. His father had said something about placing them solidly there. Make ready. The gun was so heavy, he had barely studied it, had not realized it was such a weight until that moment, until he tried to bring it up. He wanted to use his other hand, but knew that was not in the dueling code. Somehow he brought it level with his shoulder. Somehow he pointed it toward the blur Craster had become. The wind gusted, bringing again that taint from the gardens and the faint sound of the orchestra striking up another quadrille. Was Fanny still there? 
making a fourth for another dance of humiliation. Fire! There we go. <laughs> Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your Jack Absolute novels yet, how would you describe the novels and the character of Jack Absolute? Well, Jack, I, I, my wife once called him my fantasy alter ego. Um, <laughs> Jack is, uh, um, I, I, I believe Jack is huge fun. Um, he, he is in a way, my wife was correct. I mean, he does everything that I would love to do. He, he starts out and, and the blooding of Jack Absolute is the, uh, the first book in the series chronologically. It's not actually the first one I wrote. I wrote the novel Jack Absolute first and then, and then prequeled with the blooding. Uh, but I really wanted to take Jack from his roots, uh, as a, you know, he, it, the book starts with him as a young Cornish lad, only nine years old, getting into all sorts of trouble, basically living a, fairly sort of feral life in Cornwall. And then he is taken up by his father and mother, who he's hardly seen in his life, and brought to London. And by the time the main body of the book uh, begins, uh, Jack is a 16-year-old student at Westminster School. And he's, um, he's uh, what, what we would say in England, he's really up himself. He thinks he's the absolute bee's knees, uh, you know, a scholar, a, a sportsman, all that stuff. And he's, he's, uh, he gets into a lot of trouble, basically, because Jack's flaw in all the books uh, is, is uh, women, uh, love. I'm not saying my wife is correct in, in assessing <laughs> me in that light, of course. But uh, um, so Jack... Um, uh, gets into quite a bit of trouble, as uh, the passage I just read indicates that. And um, and because of the consequences of this duel, or rather the duel that his father shortly fights against Lord Melbury, who's the top politician in the country, um, Jack is forced to flee. And in the second half of the book, he arrives in Canada two days before the Battle of Quebec, which I'm sure many of your listeners will know was the sort of turning point in, in a big turning point in North American history and that it was the defeat of the French. And finally, the French uh, were out of the equation for North American politics. Um, the, uh, so, so Jack, going back to Jack himself, he's, yeah, this, this book shows him developing into who he'll be later on in the series as well. Um, though he's a bit of, you know, he, he really... Um, you know, thinks himself to be quite the, uh, the, the, the man about town and all that. Uh, what the experiences that happen in this book shape him in the future. Uh, he fights in the battle. The blooding is actually uh, not this duel at all, but uh, it's a term from fox hunting, actually. The first time a kill is made in fox hunting, uh, the youth is then blooded. Literally, they wipe the blood of the fox on the man's face. So it's a coming-of-age ritual. In this case, Jack learns to kill. It's the first time he ever kills a man. Not, again, I hasten to point out, in this duel, but on the battlefield. So he becomes a man in that sense. He's also... Um, uh, captured at the end of the battle and enslaved by the Abenaki, which is very formative for him because he escapes with a young Mohawk warrior called Arte, who becomes his, uh, well, I don't want to spoil too much, but, but becomes essential to the whole series. And Jack, essentially at that point, becomes also not only the son of a baronet, Sir, uh, Sir James Absolute, but he also becomes a, an adopted Mohawk. So again, my wife's idea of him being my fantasy alter ego comes into play because, well, I always say that with Jack that he's, he's a, he, is a, he becomes a spy, so he's a, he's a touch of an English James Bond, you know, an upper-class English, but he's also a touch of Hawkeye. Uh, 
Um, he's a he's a baronet who can kill with a tomahawk. <laughs> Great. Well, well, I know that that currently there there are three Jack Absolute novels. Do you have plans, or are you working on a fourth now? Um, I have delicious plans for Jack, and I would love to return to him. I mean, when I began the series, I had mapped out at least seven books, if not more. Um, unfortunately, the publishing world tends to take you in all sorts of strange directions. And um, after the third Jack Absolute book came out, I made the mistake of uh, allowing my editor in London to get me drunk at a club in London. And, and we changed the plot. And I suddenly found myself writing Medieval again. And that set me off on the Medieval track. And so uh, that, that drunken lunch led to Vlad, The Last Confession, my, my novel about the real Dracula, which came out in the States a few years ago and, uh, and was, was quite successful. So I then followed that up with the book about the fall of Constantinople and then that with the book about uh, Shakespeare's fight choreographer, Shakespeare's rebel. So even though I get beseeching emails all the time, I have to say, <laughs> almost every week about when are we going to see more Jack? And I, I have actually got about a, a quarter of, a, of another Jack novel written. I keep getting sidetracked. So right now I'm, I'm in the middle of a a two-book deal a writing about Restoration England. The first book is called Plague and is out later this year. So, so the, the short answer is, yes, I intend to write more Jacks. The, uh, the longer answer is, I'm not sure when. <laughs> okay. Well, well um, you started out as an actor. How, how did you make the transition from acting to writing historical novels and young adult novels as well? Well, I, I, I will just say, just in case there's any producers or directors listening, that I'm still an actor. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, my, my hat is still out there, though I don't tend to act very much these days. I, I did do a, a TV movie earlier, or late last year. But, um, well, it, it was uh, a fairly, I, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of crossover between the two worlds, of course, because what I consider myself essentially to be is a storyteller. Um, I, I, I come from a family of storytellers. Uh, all my grandparents were actors, um, and, and, and my grandfathers were both writers. My father was an actor and a writer. So stories was always a part of my life. And I, I've ju I'm just fascinated by storytelling. And so I, uh, uh, being an actor, of course, I told other people's stories, um, sometimes Fantastically, you know, I played Hamlet once, for example. Um, I've, 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 I starred in a biblical Roman epic in the '80s called AD in in the US, um, and and sometimes not so well. I think I got I started to get a bit frustrated by just being a working actor, and some of the some of the scripts were not great, but you do them anyway. And and but but beyond that, I always just wanted to start tapping into my crazy stories that were in my head in my imagination. And I always knew that historical fiction was really which way I wanted to go. So, but though I actually began in the more, the, the middle step was I started writing plays and I wrote a couple of plays which were produced on a fairly small scale in, in Canada and in the UK. And then um, knowing that historical fiction was where I really, really wanted to be, I'd had this cracking idea, which took me years to sit down to write because i I felt a novel was just too vast a thing to tackle. But it was about the man who killed Anne Boleyn. And eventually, when I finally settled down to write that in, in the fall of 1999, it just poured out of me. It had been sitting in my head for so long. And that was the, the, my first novel, The French Executioner. 
And 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 so once you wrote that, what what was kind of the path to publication for you? Was was it pretty easy, or or did you? I, yeah, sorry. I mean, I I, I hate to uh, I hate to tell this story sometimes because it just <laughs> so annoys so many so many other authors because I I I didn't suffer at all. Uh, uh, didn't struggle at all. I mean, you know, apart from the initial impetus of sitting down and writing the bloody thing, sure. um, I uh, once I had written it, I think because I'd spent so long thinking about it, and because it was such a good idea. I mean, the man who killed Anne Boleyn, you know, taking her six-fingered hand and what happened next. Mm-hmm. It was just a sort of, you know, it was a wild, wild adventure. People still love that book because it's so crazy in some ways. Um, but uh, I. I suppose my advantage of being an actor, back to that question, was that I knew the I knew about the entertainment business, which is essentially what writing is, and uh, so I knew that I needed to get an agent, and I also knew how to approach them in a way that perhaps other people didn't, because I had a number as an actor. So I went after this one particular agent in London, who happened to be one of the top agents in London, and um, I didn't quite stalk her, but it probably wasn't far off, and in the end. Um, well, not in the end, really, quite quickly. She she uh, read a bit of it, took me on, and had it sold within two months. And the publisher uh, bought it, gave me a two-book deal. They wanted one, you know, a, a sequel straight away, so that became Blood Ties, my second book. And so, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize to all writers who are getting all those terrible letters from publishers and agents, but it was pretty easy for me. That, that's a great story. So, So what is your research <laughs> process like when you're – uh, working on a historical novel. Well, I, I'm I'm actually in that stage right now because um, I'm I'm just starting the second novel of that new deal I'm doing, um, and I'm so, so I'm researching the Great Fire of London. It, it starts with a lot of um, more general reading. Uh, I, you know, I'll have an idea of the story, obviously, uh, and the characters. Um, I won't know a lot of the specifics necessarily, and so I read around the subject quite a lot. Uh, you know, I'll read uh, both about the society, uh, but ab- about the events, the actual history of the period, and about some of the, the major players in the period. So um, with the blooding of Jack Absolute, it was interesting because, um, I mean, I don't know how many of your readers or listeners know this, but of course, Jack Absolute comes is a character that was created by Richard Brinsley Sheridan in his 18th century comic play, The Rivals. And I played Jack Absolute on stage um, in 1987, touring Britain. So, uh, uh, so Jack Absolute is a sort of dashing army captain and roguish lover in that. And I took that essence and transposed him into my Jack Absolute for the series. Um, so I, uh, I knew I had a fairly good grasp of the period anyway, um, having played it. I, I with with. The blooding, um, one of the things I love to do with any research, actually, is to read the plays of the period because it gives you a flavor of the language, even though you're not going to directly transcribe the language of the time. But you can, you can give it a, a, a touch or a flavor. And, um, and then you read the biographies of the major players. Uh, I read a wonderful biography about John Burgoyne, who's Jack's commander. Um, not so much in the blooding certainly in the, in the first novel, Jack Absolute. Um, uh, the, you Americans will know him as Gentleman Johnny, the man who surrendered at Saratoga. Um, and once you start reading about the people, you obviously get a lot of the, their history within the context of the larger history. 
Um, I was also fascinated by the Battle of Quebec, which when, when I was at school, which was decades ago, um, was taught, you know, as, as one of those sort of made uh, um, um, history-shifting battles. Sorry. And it was a, a, a fascinating battle in many ways because it was one of those, you know, it could have gone either way, literally with one moment's shift. So I was interested in that. So that's the sort of research I do. And then you narrow it down, of course, because it's all, a, I, I don't give history lessons. I'm not a historian. Um, but I like, obviously like to get the history right. People read historical fiction because they love the history, but they don't necessarily want to read pure history. So, um, so I like to get the history right, the details and all that. But I always say that uh, history, any fact you, you, you turn up is a springboard for the imagination. And unless it can be used for the character, unless it enhances the character in some way or enhances the reader's feeling for a period so they understand the character's context more, there's no point in putting it in. I mean, you mentioned Diana Gabaldon before, who's lovely and a great, uh, thankfully, a great supporter of mine. And she's, um, we've done panels together many times. She's a good friend. But she's, she has this wonderful quote. She says, um, you know, there's the school of historical fiction writing, which is, I've suffered for my research. Now it's your turn. Uh, which I think is wonderful because it's true. You read some books and it's like, why are you digressing on five pages of, of uh, you know, the, the way lace hung when it doesn't have anything to do with the character? So as long as the character needs to know it or needs to uh, use it, then I put it in. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I, I know you, I mentioned earlier, I know you've written young adult novels as well. The, the Runestone Saga Mm. Uh, published under the name Chris Humphreys. How did writing for young adults differ for you from writing for adults? It's an interesting question. And I, I, I've thought about it a bit, but not too much, really, because I just tell stories. Um, I, I don't consciously think, oh, I'm writing for young adults now, so I must you know, tone it down or ramp it up or do anything like that. I think the only, you know, I, I, I think, um, young adults, teenagers are super smart these days. Oh, they, perhaps they always have been. And, and they, um, you know, they would hate in any way to be con condescended to by, by an <laughs> author. So I just, I just try to tell a good story. I, the only things I might do, I suppose, I sometimes think about it is, is that even though my books cut to the chase pretty <laughs> consistently, I might do it even more in a young adult book. You know, there might be slightly less description. There might be slightly more action. But really, it's not terribly a conscious thing. Again, it's all about characters pursuing something. And, um, and, and I think the only, the only other difference might be a choice of subject matter. I mean, you mentioned the Runestone saga, for example. Uh, I know when I was 13 years old, 14, I was reading a lot of adult horror, actually. Uh, and um, I, I think that... Uh, that um, uh, Teenagers like to have the, you know, like to have the bejesus scared out of them. So I, I, uh, I, uh, I might do a little more of that. You know, I like the idea of teenagers having to put the book outside the bedroom door so they don't have to sleep in the same room as it. That, that might be more of that going on. That's great. Well, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who would like to have their own novels published? I mean, obviously you had a, a very easy path to publication, but just in terms of the writing craft and um, what, what advice would you have? Well, th there's two different 
um, approaches, really. I mean, one is obviously the professional business approach, and that's, that's one that you just have to grasp. Uh, the world is changing so much these days in terms of uh, publishing uh, that uh, you have to keep abreast of what's going on. Um, you know, so you need to know, you have to craft a submission, I mean, I, you know, on the, on the business side of it, I, I, I think it's essential that writers really understand that the people they're approaching have hardly any time for new people. They're so busy with the people they have. Having said that, I don't want to, you know, discourage people because everyone's on the lookout for the next big thing, the next good book that's going to sell. And, and people in publishing, generally people who love books, they love stories. So, so there is a market out there, but you have to approach it in a very professional way. You know, your, your submissions must be concise but grabby. Um, you must only go out with it when you've submitted, when you've got your absolute highly polished best work. And that comes down to the writing then, I suppose, and the editing. You know, I think it's essential for any um, aspiring writer to get themselves a good editor. It doesn't have to, you know, sometimes you pay for it. Sometimes you, you've got, so you know someone. I, I would, I would go outside your family because they're always going to be too kind to you or too hard on you, depending on your family dynamic. Um, so, you know, go, but, but make sure that when you, when you step up, step up to the plate to use your American baseball terms, you know, you are totally fit and ready to go, ready to hit that ball out of the park. I'm probably stretching this metaphor way too far, but anyway, um, uh, so that, that's that side of it, the business side, the, the craft side of it. Well, you know, you've just got to write, you've got to keep writing. You've got to, um, in the end, I think we write a combination of what we've always loved to read and who we are. And it's marrying those elements. You can't be slavishly, you know, trying to emulate your favorite uh, writer, obviously. You've got to inject your own. But also, art is about patterning. You pattern. All the great artists pattern on someone else to start with, at least. So, you know, I would absolutely say um, write what you love uh, rather than write what you know. Um, you know, people say write what you know. But I think it's, it's hard to write. Writing is quite hard. And you need to have a passion every time you sit down at that desk so uh, if you if you uh, if there's something you love to read i i would submit that that's what you love to write and that's what you need to sit down and write great well what books or writers fiction or nonfiction, have you read lately that that made an impact on you and that you would recommend oh gosh well actually just two days ago uh, <laughs> I, I finished uh, gone girl uh the thriller um, you know, which is, uh, I, have jumped on that bandwagon very late because I think it's been a bestseller for two years now, but, but, um, stunning, absolutely stunning the way she handles it, uh, creepy and wonderful. Um, uh, the, so that, that, that impacted me because I'm, I'm essentially moving slightly more into thrillers these days. My new books, Plague and Fire are both thrillers rather than a slightly more straightforward historical. Um, so, um, uh, that I loved, um, of course, I read a lot of nonfiction books all the time. So I'm reading a great book about, uh, about the Great Fire of London right now, which is called – I'm stepping away from the mic for a second to grab it. Uh, it's, it's called By Permission of Heaven by Adrian Tinniswood. And that's, that's an excellent book. Um, I, uh, I, um, I'm trying to think of what else I've read lately. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I, I tend not to read too much in my own genre. Sure. Sure. Especially when I'm writing it. I, I, I don't fear influence too much. I think I'm sort of beyond that now, I hope. But I just, uh, I tend to, you know, be, be intrigued by other stuff. I mean, I'm always, I always feel that I will, 
um, set out and write a, a, a modern thriller or a modern, um, well, you can't do a modern historical, but you know what I mean, a modern sure. sort of adventure story someday. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, I, you know, w w the rare chance I get to read for pleasure, because I have to say I, I read so much for my profession now, sure. uh, it's harder for me to just pick up a book to read for fun. But I tend to gravitate more to the, uh, the modern thrillers. I read um, uh, When We Were Orphans, uh, Kashua Ishiguro novel last year astonishing again and I read a wonderful novel by a man who's become a friend of mine because he lives on the same island as me in British Columbia called Ronald Wright called The Scientific Romance which is a futuristic um, it's set 500 years in the future and a man who travels from our time to then and it's sort of an environmental it's, it's very depressing if you think this is the way the world's heading but fantastic again great writing that's great. Well, you described your, your upcoming novels, um, Fire and Plague. You described them as historical thrillers. In, in your mind, what, what would be kind of the characteristics of a, of a historical thriller? Is it just the pacing and the plot? Um, well, it, it, partly that, though I think that pacing and plot, I mean, I, I think in a way all my books are, are thrillers in the sense of uh, that they 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 are they move pretty quickly, sure. and you know people want to hopefully keep turning the pages. That's my 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 sort of my main criteria of writing is make <laughs> them want to turn the pages. Um, so I think my you know and, and my first novel uh, French Execution was actually runner up for the Steel Dagger for thrillers, which was a shock to me because I hadn't thought you know it was in that genre. So I think all my books are thrillers in a way. I, I suppose the difference here is is the crime element and the who done it element. I think the one thing a thriller often has is uh, a bit of a mystery to it. Not always, but sure. but often. And so um, there's a there's a who done it element in both the new books, which perhaps isn't there so much in the other ones. Gotcha, gotcha. So where can people find you online if they're interested in learning about more about you and your books? Um, well, uh, I have a website, which is just cchumphreys.com. Um, and that's pretty comprehensive. Um, it has, uh, it has my own podcasts on there. Some of my research photos, um, some extracts sometimes. Um, I have a blog as well, which is attached to that. Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at HumphreysCC. Um, so yes, there's, I'm, 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 and, and I have a, uh, uh, a Facebook, a public Facebook page, which is again, uh, CC Humphreys. I can send you those details if you like. Sure. Sure. And I'll post those in the show notes as well. Well, Great. again, again, we've been speaking with CC Humphreys, author of the Jack Absolute series, as well as other historical novels and the young adult series, the Runestone Saga published as Chris Humphreys. The Jack Absolute novels are in bookstores now are available as eBooks. So, so go grab a copy. CC, thanks for doing this interview. It's been a great pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Great. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts 
to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.